If you have a Bible, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 13, if you would. The first half of that chapter is devoted to a famous parable, and that's the parable of the sower. And I don't want to so much focus on that as I want to draw a principle out of it and then move on to our topic. But if you'll read with me from verse 3, Matthew says that Jesus told them many things in parables. He says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And in verse 9... He says, he who has ears, let him hear. So as we, as we talk tonight, you uh, need to consider what kind of soil are you? Because the things that I, I want to share with you, I don't certainly expect to exhaust the subject um, tonight, anyway. But just introduce to you some, some things for our consideration We want to be people who hear God's word. We want to be people who hear the words of the kingdom and we embrace them and we apply them to our life so that they do bear fruit. Does that make sense? So just by way of preface, I read that that parable. I have, and I know many others, have been very, very concerned in the recent days over many things that are going on in our world and more particularly uh, the economics of uh, not just our own culture, but the world, economy, and uh, what some prognosticators are saying is the coming economic collapse, the world collapse. The stock market is projected to, to lose uh, 40% uh, in a bear market this next year. Uh, we see all sorts of things happening and all sorts of threats and reports. Um, notwithstanding the fact that we are also uh, facing a looming threat. Many of you are aware of the what's known as the millennium bug, and that is the crash of the world computers and the Y2K problem. So there's lots of things facing us, and these problems are laying a tremendous, I'm discovering a tremendous weight on Christians and most particularly uh, in the area of their finances. What do I as a Christian do with respect to finances, given these uh, threats to our culture? I, can I just say, well, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. God will take care of everything. Or as Proverbs says, that the wise, the prudent man, sees danger and prepares for it. So I want to suggest to you that we want to look I think it's a very, very important time for us to look at some principles uh, that God has for us. Uh, And again, basically, I want to talk to you about um, the believer and his or her financial responsibilities. And I believe that this 
has a tremendous bearing not only on our economic situation, but also a tremendous bearing on our own spiritual life and our own fruitfulness, each one individually. These things are wedded inseparably. Uh, we are spiritual beings living in a material world, and there is this back-and-forth relationship between how we deal with uh, things in this life and the impact and the effect and the uh, result in our own spiritual life. So these things are not without some substantial and significant effect and result. See, how you understand and how you relate to money, how you understand and how you relate to your financial responsibility as a Christian does have a tremendous bearing on your spiritual life and does have a tremendous bearing on your fruitfulness. And if you look to Luke chapter 16, you'll see what I mean. Kirk, can you turn those uh, fans off, please? Thank you. Now, these are the memory verses I've given you for the week, and so I just want to have you look at them. Verses 10 and 11 of Luke chapter 16. Jesus says, Who... Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Now, we know that principle. Many of us would teach our kids that. And then he goes on and says, So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth... So the question is, how, how have I done handling worldly wealth? How have I done handling finances, the, the money and the resources that God has entrusted to me. Now, here's the relationship. Here's the connection. If we're faithless in that area, if we've not been good stewards in that area, look what he says. Who will trust you with true riches? The true riches, I want to suggest, uh, speak to the issue of our own spiritual life. Whether Are, are we going to flourish spiritually? Are we flourishing spiritually or not? Are we producing fruit in our own life? Are we producing fruit that lasts? So there's a definite connection there. You know, when we, when we talk about money, we are, in a very real sense, talking about life, aren't we? Money is, in a sense, life. Why can I say that? Well, because we spend basically our whole life trying to get money spend a lot of time figuring out how can I get it, how can I keep it, <laughs> and how should I spend it, right? So we spend a lot of our time and our energy, and many people lose sleep over money. It's not just that they're waking hours. Uh, and so we can very really say that uh, money, uh, in a sense, is life. Now remember, money is, is amoral. That means money in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's what we do with the money that now uh, becomes good or bad. It's how it's used. So money either has righteous ramifications or it has unrighteous ramifications in our life. And thus, it is obviously very important. So what am I doing with the resources that God has entrusted me? Am I using them in a righteous manner? Am I using them in a manner which God has prescribed? Or am I using them in an unrighteous manner? Because again, these have an effect and give evidence of fruitfulness or lack thereof in my own life. Now I want to look at three, three of God's 
standards this week and next week. We'll look at the first standard in the, in, the, in, the, in the next two next week. Three God standards for Christians' finances. And the first one I'm going to call uh, the, the right to possess money. The right to possess money. Now, there are some say that a Christian has no right to possess money, and they get that from uh, the book of Acts, a misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the early chapters of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 4. And many of you know that in the book of Acts, it chronicles the beginning of the church. It's after Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit has come, uh, the church has begun, and uh, we see in Jerusalem there where the church has begun that Luke records that where there are people who are in need, that members of the local congregation there would, from time to time, sell some goods. That Some would have property or houses or some kind of goods. They would sell those things. They'd bring the money, and they'd lay it at the apostles' feet so the apostles could distribute it uh, to those who had need. But there are some people who, who say, well, you know, that really is Christian communism or Christian communism. And I want to suggest to you that nowhere does the Bible teach that. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we take everybody's resources, pull it all together in one giant lump sum, and then we just distribute it equally. Nowhere in the Bible uh, do we have a teaching against the right of ownership and private property and those kinds of things. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you sell everything and you come and you bring it all to the church and now you're poverty struck. There were some in the Jerusalem church who did do that. There were some in the Jerusalem church who lost everything because of persecution. And the result was the rest of the church. And Paul went around taking a collection from all the other churches to help support the Jerusalem saints. So I want to suggest to you, first, first of all, as we talk about finances and, and a Christian um, that we do have a right to possess money. Those early passages in the book of Acts do not speak against that. So we want to see what the Bible says about possessing money. And if we're to do so, we want to look at this very first thought. And the very first thought is found in Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, we're, so, we're told very simply that all the money is God's. Okay? The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Now God's talking about all the silver, all the gold, in all the nations. Every bit of money that all the peoples of the world are in possession of. He says, it's all mine. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? It's all God's. It's all God's. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, we see an interesting statement by God. He says, remember the Lord your God. Don't forget me. Because it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's God who's given you and I the ability to gain a measure of wealth. So notice two things. All the money is God's, right? And secondly, God grants to men the ability to get that which is His in terms of money or wealth. Paul would further say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? 
So everything we have, we have received. And basically, we've received it from God. The Bible clearly teaches us that. So now all the money belongs to God. Think with me. You can only give to somebody what belongs to you. Isn't that true? So if all the money belongs to God, it's his to give, isn't it? It's his to distribute. And so if God gives it to us, then it was his to begin with. Now you say, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, God gives us the ability to gain what is his, a measure of what is his. So it's, it's not assumed in the Bible that it is wrong to hold or to have or to get money, but rather God allows us to have it. Now you have to look at money, I think as one of God's gifts to us. I think you have to look at money as one of God's gifts. And all of God's gifts, which he intends for our good, uh, mankind somehow, at some point, manages to pervert and twist, doesn't he? We just have this ability, we just have this knack to take good things, blessings he's given us, and we twist them, we pervert them. Um, take, for example, God's gift of nature. We go and we explore nature, and we discover the secrets that God has hidden away in nature, and we find some way to take the secrets he's hidden away as we've discovered them and turn them into a bomb or some such thing. At some place along the line, man finds a way to pervert God's good gifts. The gift of marriage, or let me just say this, the gift of sex. Is sex a good gift? I think so. It's a great gift. It's a wonderful gift. God invented sex for, the, for man's pleasure. Isn't that amazing? Well, I thought God invented sex for kids. Well, he did, but he had to make it fun for us to have the kids. <laughs> so it's good. God made it, and he gave it to us as a gift. But, beloved, sex is for marriage. Sex is for marriage. The book of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear, as do other places. If you remember back in our study in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is to be honored and the marriage bed is to be pure. But we find a way somehow to pervert even God's marvelously beautiful gift of sex and indeed marriage. Food. Is food a gift from God? Absolutely. So, do we pervert that? Yes, we sure do. I went out to dinner at some friend's house the other night and made a glutton out of myself. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Everything that God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything God created is good. Not to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. But we take good things, we take God's gifts, and we find some way to pervert it. We have a way of twisting and perverting all of God's good gifts. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, this is in the context of a passage talking about money. Paul is instructing Timothy, he's instructing the church about money, and right in the middle of that passage, it says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I think that's a wonderful statement. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not some horrible ogre who wants everybody in pain and misery. He's created and given us wonderful gifts 
that we might enjoy and may enhance our life. We can use them for our benefit. We can be blessed by them. And then he gets the glory, doesn't he? We say, God, thank you for these wonderful gifts. Thank you for these wonderful gifts. That's part of his intention. If you look back in the Old Testament, we see the patriarchs, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These were all extremely wealthy men. God had prospered them. It's undeniable. And even Israel was rich. The land of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. God just blesses his people. So the bottom line is, I think we need to understand that God has decided to grant the power to gain a measure of wealth to us. He wants us to have money. And there are in the Bible certain principles that are designed by God to increase our ability to gain money, to increase our ability to gain a measure of wealth. Um, and when I say wealth, I, I, I mean something as opposed to nothing. Okay, we, we take that word wealth and automatically we're thinking mansions and you know, Mercedes, Benz, and Porsches, and Cadillacs, and all those things. No, no, when the Bible talks about wealth, it means something as opposed to nothing. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, just so overwhelmingly extravagant. So, let's look. There's, there's three, three things that God has designed. We've already established the fact that all money is his. He wants us to have some, and he's designed three avenues Three very simple ways for us to gain wealth. Do you want to know what these ways are? Are you excited to hear them? Are you ready for the first one? Okay, get ready. Here comes the first one. Work. That's the first. First principle that God has designed so that we could gain money. Aren't you excited? If you didn't know it, work is a divine principle. God means for us to work. He meant for the original pair, Adam and Eve, to work in the garden, and that was an idyllic setting. We understand the necessity to work and be productive in this life. There are lots and lots of people who have ceased working uh, for one reason or another. Uh, many of them are wandering our streets today, and their, their lives just are unraveling. Uh, when you cease being productive, something happens to your life uh, that diminishes you. A person needs to work. A person needs to be productive for lots of reasons. But among those reasons is for just a sense of personal well-being, a sense of order and structure in their life. That's why we teach our kids to work. Taught my son early on. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. So... Work is a divine principle. Proverbs chapter 14, uh, incidentally, uh, we're going to work in heaven, by the way, I believe. Yes, we're not just going to be sitting around in clouds, uh, flapping our wings and playing our harps, you know. We're going to be working in heaven. You say, what are we going to do? I don't know, but I, I know that because work is a divine principle, we're going to be working. But let's look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. The writer of Proverbs says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Is that practical? 
Yeah. So we see God talking about work. It's a good thing. God has designed that hard work should bring forth a measure of wealth. God has given us work in order that we may gain money, that we may gain wealth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, very practical principle here. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. And here's the rule. If a man will not work, assuming he's able, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's pretty practical. You see, a man needs to work. A person needs to work, as I said earlier, for a sense of their own personal well-being. They need to be productive. They need to be active. Verse 11 in that same passage says, We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. Rather, they are busy bodies. They get just hanging around. They meddle. They busybody people. Work, therefore, is a very practical principle. There's a great illustration of this in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Very practical illustration of hard work. If you can look up to the ant. The writer says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Early on, I would always, my son and I would always read the Proverbs together and... and uh, he, he said to me a long time ago, he says, you know, Dad, he says, I always remember that word sluggard. <laughs> he said, I don't ever want to be a sluggard. He says, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways, and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, no boss. Yet it stores up its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Isn't that amazing? No one to tell it what to do. No one to kick it out of bed in the morning and say, get out of bed, you lazy bum. Get to work. No, the ant. So he says, in effect, he says, you lazy people, check the ant out. doesn't have any kind of boss, any kind of employer. It just does the job. It goes to work. It gathers its food in summer, stores it away prepared for the winter. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. The writer says, if you won't plow in season, then at harvest you'll find nothing. So we can see that work is, in fact, a biblical doctrine. It's a very practical doctrine. Unfortunately, we don't preach it enough. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty scathing uh, statement. That's the reality. If a person will not provide for his family, he's denied the faith. How can you say that you are a Christian, a believer, if you're not providing for your family, if you're being lazy? You're, you're not a believer. You're worse than an unbeliever. Wow, what a powerful statement. So we see that Work is designed by God to bring us a profit. God wants us to have money because God knows that we need money to live. So that's pretty simple. 
So what's the first principle that God has designed for us to gain a measure of his money? Work. He wants us to have it. Okay? Now, are you ready for the second principle? Okay, this is very good. This is very important. Ready? Save. Save. What's the first one? What's the second one? Save. Save. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. Very, very poignant statement. He says, In the house of the wise are stores, speaks of saving, are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. He says, in effect, you know what the wise man does? He sets aside some of his treasure for the unexpected. He has a savings. But the fool swallows up everything he has. The Living Bible has a really good translation of this. The Living Bible says it this way. The wise man saves for the future. The foolish man spends whatever he gets. Pretty, clear, pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now, one good way of thinking, to think about saving, is this idea of margin. We talk about uh, having a, a margin of time, you know, the margin for error, there's a number of aspects, a number of arenas that we, we can think of in terms of a margin. A savings is really a margin. And you determine the margin. How much am I going to save? How much am I going to put away? What's my margin going to be? Everybody should have savings. The Bible talks about it. If you're a Christian and you're not saving, something is wrong. And we'll get to what could possibly be wrong in just a little bit. So we want to be people who are saving. A little bit extra, something extra. You see, if we don't save, then we end up presuming on God. We end up presuming on God. On His grace that He will meet our need when we have not done our part. Let's say you go out and you overdo it. Let's say you spend and buy something you really don't need, you overextend yourself to a place where there is no margin, there is no savings. And then a crisis comes. What happens then? You're in trouble. We're in trouble. And many times we run to God and we say, God, get me out of a jam. Get me out of a jam. Get me out of a jam. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. In Psalm 19, verse 13, David's, David's prayer was, was this. He said, keep your servant, meaning himself, also from willful sins, or you could also say from presumptuous sins. Keep me, God, from presuming on your graciousness. Has he not called us to act and to live responsibly? Has he not given us a plan and a design to do so? And when we act irresponsibly, he doesn't kick us out of the kingdom, but sometimes we act so irresponsible, we run to him every single minute like a, like a spoiled child, bail me out of this, bail me out of that, bail me out of this. It's the wise parent who won't bail you out. It's the wise parent who's going to allow you to, if need be, learn your lesson the hard way. True? It's the same thing when Satan took Jesus up 
to the to the to the highest part of the of the uh, of the temple. And he said, "Throw yourself off. God has to save you." And what does Jesus respond to him in Matthew chapter four verse seven? Do you remember his response? Yeah, it's written. He says, "Don't put the Lord your God to the test." Don't put yourself and don't put him in a position where now you're desperate and he's got to save you because of your own foolishness. He's told us ahead, work, work hard, and save. Have a margin. So you got to look into your life. You say, am I working? Am I working hard? And do I have a margin? Do I save some? Don't put yourself in a desperate situation by your own foolishness and demand then that God extricate you because when he doesn't, that just blows people away. I've seen more people get mad at God, leave the church, walk away because of their own foolishness and they demand that God extricate them from that and he doesn't. That's sin. That's sin. So operate on a margin. Operate on a margin. Remember this. Don't buy the things you don't need with the money that you don't have from the people that you don't know to impress the people you don't like. Isn't that a good rule? Sure. If you do, you only get yourself in a situation where you're overextended, where you have more obligations than you have income, obviously. And let's say that somewhere along the line, somewhere down the line, you're really you're overextended. Somewhere along the line, there's a, there's an opportunity to contribute to some ministry. There's an opportunity to help some particular need. What happens? You can't you can't give. You can't participate. You miss out. I mean, that's a horrible thought. I can't participate. Because I haven't been managing the resources that God has given me. I've been managing them faithfully. I can't participate. There's a need. I want to. I can't do it. Isn't that a tragedy? I think it's a horrible tragedy. Maybe, maybe you get to the place, because you're so overextended, that you lose your job, you lose your house, you lose your car. And some people even declare bankruptcy. I don't agree with that. And you lose your testimony. What kind of Christian are you? We should be people, above all, who are learning to be good stewards, are we not? But if we're living foolishly and we're not abiding by God's standards, who do we have to blame? Ourselves. We find ourselves in a mess. You say, but, but isn't God a God of grace? Isn't he a God of love? Yeah, but he disciplines those he loves. Remember that. You don't know that he's not going to let you go through some horrible thing. And then you find yourself limited as to what you can do for God. Because you have to pay for your own foolishness with every dime you get. You, you can't participate in the kingdom. If ever God came and called you away to some mission field or some ministry opportunity, you couldn't go. You're stuck. Got all these debts. 
One of the things that, that, that is required of people going on, on these mission trips is that they be out of debt. Don't be spending... If you owe people money, pay those debts off before you sign up for a mission trip. So, God wants every Christian to have money. And good news, he wants you to have more money than you need. Isn't that exciting? He wants you to have more money than you need. You say, he does? Yes. So the first principle is to... Second principle is to... Now here's the third principle. You ready for the third one? Plan. Plan. It's like magic, huh? Three simple words. Work, save, and plan. A lot of people, unfortunately, plan this way. Oh, well, it'll all work out in the end. That's their plan. What do we mean by a plan? A plan can be summed up in one word. Budget. Thank you, Steve. Budget. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands how many people in this room have a family budget. I'm not going to show, ask for a show of hands, but thank you, Bob. Because <laughs> I don't want anybody to be embarrassed because the majority of people do not have a budget. We do enough financial counseling in our church, and we, we are just amazed at how many people don't have a clue about a budget. The money just comes in and goes out. And without a budget, you, just, you do not know how much money you're wasting and spending, needlessly. I want to suggest to you, God gives you the amount of money he has planned for you to have. And he's given you more than you need. Remember that. So it's important to have a budget, because a budget speaks to what? The issue of stewardship. You say, oh, I don't need a budget. Well, at least have a priority list. If you won't sit down and make a budget, you ought to be able to account for every single penny. Whose money is it? It's God's money. And keep records. You've got to know where you are. Because... With them, so that they're eating up all your income. But what happens when you are overextended? What happens when you are overdue, when you owe money and you can't pay it? You have no collateral. What happens to you? Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower now is servant or literally slave to the lender. He says we should owe no man, in effect, anything but what? Love. Don't get in debt. You become a slave to the person to whom you owe something. And when that happens, you violate another biblical principle. I do? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23. Paul says, you were bought with a price. What was the price? Blood of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves to men even with respect to money and finances. A Christian should always 
be free enough to respond to whatever God wants him or her to do at any given moment. We need to be free enough. I'm not tied down. I don't have, I'm not enslaved by debt. I can move. I can go. I can do what God wants me to do. We do need to have in this world a pilgrim mentality, don't we? We talked last week about being too earthbound. And these things deal with that. Now, there's some other, some other principles I want to run by you real quick. Don't become a loan company. Don't become a loan company. Now, there are some exceptions. There's one notable exception. If you've got somebody who just bugs you to death and this person bothers you incessantly, the best thing to do to get rid of that person is, in fact, to loan him money. <laughs> You'll probably never see him again. And you may think that that's a good investment. I don't know. He said, but wait a minute, what about the person who comes to me and says, I have a need. I have a need. I want some money to get that, to fill this need. And you say, that's not a need. That's not a necessity. If it's not a necessity, don't loan him the money. Just say it's not a need. That simple. You say, well, but what if it is a necessity? What if it really is a necessity? Then don't loan him the money. Give it to him. Remember the early church? Whoever had goods, whoever had houses, whoever had lands, when there was a genuine need, some sold these things, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. And the apostles met the need. Give it to them. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says, If any man sees his brother in need and has no pity, how can the love of God be in him? You've got to meet the need. But I'm not going to loan you money. And there are Christians who are loaning money to other Christians and charging interest. Can you imagine that? I had to confront an issue like that, and I had to talk to a brother, and I'd say, you loan so-and-so money, and you're charging that person interest? How can you countenance doing that? Well, it's just good business. We're not talking about business. We're talking about kingdom principles. This is a brother. And upon instructing him in the scriptures, he repented, and he forgave the debt. He says, it's a gift. You don't have to pay me back. I said, what about the money he's already paid you back and the interest? He gave that back too. Isn't that great? <laughs> you see, if a person needs it, give it to him. Give it to him. Don't loan it. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 18 says, it is poor judgment to countersign another's note to become responsible for another person's debt. Don't become a loan company and don't countersign for another person's debt. You're an absolute fool if you do that. So the scripture then says that there are three principles by, what, by which God has designed that we should get wealth. The first principle is? Work. Second principle is? Third principle is? Work. All right. Isn't that exciting? 
God wants you to have money. And he wants you to have more money than you need. That ought to just go, wow. Well, how do I get it? Well, I work, and I save, and I plan. If you follow his principles, you will have more money than you need. Is that not awesome? Is that not awesome? Not just the bare necessities. You'll have more than you need so that you can be sensitive when the Holy Spirit calls you and he says, there's a need. And you can say, oh, good, I can take some out of my margin and I can go meet that need. I can go help. Beloved, we, we're storing up treasure in heaven, aren't we? God has given us money as a trust to be well cared for, to invest as he directs us. We want to be free to respond to the Holy Spirit, don't we? Well, now you say, well, now, wait a minute. I hear what you say. I'm glad to know that God wants me to have money. I'm glad to know that God wants me to have more money than I need. But there's a problem. I'm a little short. And not in stature. You see, I'm not sure that God really understands my situation because I never seem to have quite enough money. I'm always having more months left at the end of my money. Well, when you don't have enough money, let me give you a test. Okay? We've already established that God wants you to have it, right? And he wants you to have more than you need. And he's given us three avenues, three principles. If we, if we engage those three principles, we're going to have more than we need. He's already told us that. So he said, well, no, wait, I, 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 I don't have enough. I'm always running short. Well, let's take a test here. Here's the test. You want to ask yourself these four questions. First question, do I need more or do I just want more? See, not all needs, or not all wants or needs, isn't that true? Need and want are different. We know that. We tell our kids that, don't we? I just need it. You need it, or you want it. Okay, so you want to ask yourself this question. Do I need more, really? Second question, is God testing my faith? Maybe God's testing my faith. Maybe I'm going through a season of pruning. John chapter 15. Look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Genesis 22, 1 talks about Abraham, where God tested Abraham. And the whole chapter is devoted to bringing Isaac as the sacrifice, and you know the whole story there. But the point is that God tested Abraham's faith. Job chapter 23, verse 10. Job said, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. So maybe you're, you're, you're undergoing a test. God's testing your faith. He wants you to stand firm. He wants you to trust him in the midst of maybe some difficult and some uh, lean circumstances. Third, third question. 
did I already misuse what he gave me? Did I already misuse what he gave me? Classic passage is Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. You can read that. Maybe you misused the money he's already given you. Maybe you've misused the resources he's already given you. Here's the fourth question. Have I violated biblical principles? Have I violated biblical principles? Now, there are a number of them that I want to uh, acquaint you with. See, if God has given you a certain amount of money and he knows that that that's enough, he knows that that's enough for all your needs plus a margin. He already knows that. And he's given you a certain amount. And you don't have enough, maybe you've violated one or more of these biblical principles. These are worth exploring. Here's the first one. Stinginess. Maybe you're a stingy person. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to what? Poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You can take that to the bank. That's the word of God. So if you're a generous man, if you're a generous person, you can expect that God will take care. God will provide. He will increase the law of sowing and reaping, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But if you're a stingy person, well, that's an altogether different story. Here's a second biblical principle you may have violated if you don't have enough. Hastiness. Maybe you're too hasty. Maybe you're always in a big hurry. You've got to have it now. Can't wait. Money burns a hole in your pocket. You've got to spend it. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. Hasty. Proverbs 21, 5. Plans of the diligent lead to what? As surely as haste leads to poverty. Who of us haven't made some purchase, haven't bought something in haste, and later on been really sorry we bought it? That's why you go home and sleep on it. That's why if you're married, you pray with your spouse about it. I tell married couples whenever I do marriage counseling, I say, don't ever make unilateral decisions in your home, especially with respect to money. Always talk about it. Always pray about it. And don't make that choice. Don't make that expenditure until you're both in agreement. Some people, however, can't stand to wait. They're hasty. Here's the third one. Principle of stubbornness. Maybe you're a stubborn person. You're just going to go out and do what you want with that money. No one is going to tell you how to handle that money. You're going to do what you want. You're stubborn. Proverbs 13, 18. 
Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects instruction. Poverty and shame will come to the person who neglects instruction, to the stubborn person. Listen to what God says to Israel through the prophet Malachi. This is a, this is a telling statement. Malachi chapter 2, verse 2. He says, if you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Maybe you're suffering leanness. Maybe you don't have enough. Maybe you're really short in the finance department because you've been stubborn and you're suffering a curse on your blessings. Could that possibly be a possibility? Here's another one. Number four. Here's a good one. Laziness laziness. Maybe you don't have enough money because you're lazy and you're not earning enough. That's one of the first questions I ask people. They say, I don't have enough money. I said, are you working? <laughs> yeah, I'm working. Are you saving? Well, I, I, I'm not earning enough. I said, earn more. Well, I'm already working. How, mu- how many hours are you working? I'm working 30 hours. 30 hours? Work 60. Well, I can't get any more hours on my job. Get a second job. <gasps> a second job? Well, I, I can't get enough hours on my second job. Get a third job. Work nights, work weekends. Thought it never occurs to people to have more than one job. Amazing. Lazy. Lazy, lazy people. Listen to Proverbs twenty thirteen. Do not love sleep or you will grow poor. (laughs) Stay awake and you will have food to spare. Get up. That's half the battle. Isn't it? (laughs) Oh, my. Proverbs 23, 21. Drowsiness will clothe a man in rags. Drowsiness will clothe a man in rags. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is a great passage. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. These aren't just nice things. This is the truth. Maybe you don't have enough because you're violating some biblical principle. Maybe you're just flat lazy. I talked to a man this week who was lazy in his life, lazy in his marriage. His wife was leaving him. And he was crying the blues. He says, poor me, poor me. You know, it's always, you hear one side, it sounds real good, but you ought to know there's a second side. So I got with the wife, found out what the wife's story was, and I got them both together. 
And I said, now tell me your side again, tell me your side again, with them both in the same room. And then I turned to him, I said, you're a lazy bum. <laughs> you're a lazy bum. You need to get your act together. Well, nobody has ever talked to me that way. Well, maybe somebody should have a long time ago. They're going to be here tomorrow morning to give testimony, by the way. <laughs> Here's the fifth one, fifth, fifth biblical thing we may be violating. Indulgence. By that I mean you indulge yourself. You indulge your appetites, your flesh. If you don't have enough money, maybe you've been indulgent. Proverbs 23, 21 says, drunkards and gluttons become poor. Maybe just give your flesh whatever. You know, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul spoke about the enemies of the cross, and he characterized them a number of ways. And one of the ways he, he described them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, he says that their God is their stomach. They indulge themselves, anything they want. Not only just in terms of food and drink, anything. I just, I buy clothes, I buy shoes. I'm indulgent. I don't know how to say no to my appetites, to my desires. James chapter 4, verse 3 is an interesting passage. James says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with what? Wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Indulgent indulgence. And here's the sixth one, the final one. We call this one craftiness. Craftiness or scheming. Are you a schemer? <laughs> Proverbs 28, verses 18 through 20. says, the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty the schemer, the dreamer, the crafty person will have his share of poverty. He who seeks out get-rich-quick schemes, pulls off some shady deal, will have his fill of poverty. Maybe you gamble. There's a man in our church who suffered horribly. His, his family suffered horribly because of his habit of gambling. He kept it secret. His, I'm not telling stories. His testimony is going to be in the magazine coming out this month. Read his testimony. Almost lost his family, lost everything because of this very violation. And until he repented, turned around, and began to honor God and began to do the things that God said to do, and then God began to restore him. You read his story in the magazine. Verse 20 of uh, Proverbs 28 says, A faithful, trustworthy man will abound with blessings. A faithful, trustworthy man will abound with blessings. Listen, beloved, God wants you to have money, and he wants you to have enough to live. He wants to be able to meet all of your needs, and he wants you to give you more than you need so that you'll have a margin, so that you can be available to the Holy Spirit, so that you're not stuck short. So when God calls, a need comes, you can say, I'm going to participate in that because I can take some from my margin to participate. And if you don't have enough, Maybe you need to backtrack. 
Maybe you need to do some soul searching. Maybe you need to do some evaluation. Find out what's wrong. Maybe you violated some biblical principle. Maybe you've misused what God has already given you. Maybe the fact is you don't need it at all. Or maybe God is bringing you through a time of tightness to test your faith. God wants us to have it. What's his? It gives your father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants us to have more than we need. The issue is, will we abide by the principles he set forth so that we can have what he's given, what he wants us to have? It's real simple. It's not complicated. And we can prepare for lean times. We can prepare for difficult economic situations. There's still yet time if we would just engage this principle. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for your instruction. Lord, we hearken to the words of Malachi to trust you, not to be stubborn, not to lean on our own understanding, but Lord, to be obedient. We want to be like the good soil that Matthew writes about that this word comes into our life. And Lord, that our, our, our lives are prepared. We want to receive it. We do receive it. And it goes down deep into us and produces a harvest of righteousness. So Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us that we would take you seriously. That we would be people who would be serious about being good stewards over worldly, worldly riches because we want to be entrusted with true riches. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in each and every one of us. Now, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's, there's some people that may be here tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does that have to do with money and finances? Everything. Because it's his kingdom. He wants to share it with you. But more than that, he wants to forgive your sins and he wants to take you into eternity with him. The Bible says that everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's standard. The Bible says that we, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. But he is the good shepherd, and he has come, and he wants to bring you into his sheepfold, into his rest. But to do that, you've got to recognize him. You've got to recognize that you're a sinner and that you have broken his laws. You're guilty before him. If you were to die tonight, what would happen to you? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you go to hell. You go to hell. It's not that God is sending people to hell. He's trying to save people from hell. We're born headed there. We're born rebels. We're born stubborn. We're born liars. God wants to save you. If you don't know Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer, prayer of commitment. But that's just the beginning. It's just, it's just going to open the door. And, and, and then from then on, it's a continual walk. You, it's like you're, you're born again and you become a little child and you've got to grow up now. And there's lots more that goes along with that. But at least making this initial decision, you can do that. 
And then there's some others of you who, quite frankly, have not been good stewards with your money. And, and as we've talked tonight, uh, God has just spoken to your heart, and you said, boom, that's me. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. And maybe you've resisted. Maybe you said, oh, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. Some of you are in a place in your life right now where you say, you know, I need to make some changes. I need to make some changes. And I want to pray with you too. So if you want to receive Christ, if you want to become a Christian, and if you're ready to make some changes in your life with respect to money and God's resources, then I want to just pray with you. But I don't want to pray by myself. I, I want to know that there are some people who want to pray. And if you do, if you say, Pastor, I want to pray. I want to become a Christian tonight. If you can say that, then I want you to just, while everybody else's heads are bowed, I want you to signal me just by raising your hand. Is there anybody at all? You're in a place right now where you, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. Just raise your hand. Okay? Did you get your hand back there for that? Okay. Anybody else? Somebody else? Okay. There's, there's some others. You're in need of repentance and, and a change in your life with respect to uh, the use of God's money in your life. You want to change. God's spoken to you. Raise your hand. I want to pray with you too. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. Good. Okay, let's pray. God, you've seen the hands go up, and you know the condition of every heart. Make this your prayer now. God, forgive me. I've been wrong. I've been a rebel. I've been doing things my own way. I've been careless. I ask you to forgive me. Give me a new life. Give me a new start. Help me to be a better steward, Lord, over the things you've entrusted into my care, even certainly the money that you've given to me. Help me to integrate these principles into my life and to be serious about them. Help me to examine my own life closely. Lord, I want my life to bear fruit. I want to be a person who, when I get to heaven, you'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. So, Lord, help us. You know our hearts. Each and every one that raised their hand, I just pray, Father, help us. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. Was it good for you? All right. Let's, uh, should we sing a song? Yes. Let's stand and let's praise the Lord one more time before we dismiss. This world is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't be at home in the 